0: Get ready for an all-new season of 430 Movie debuting this October with some exciting new theme weeks curated by your favorite 430 Movie hosts. Yes, the 430 Movie is back, and we hope you will be too. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're not listening to The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast, you should be. It's the podcast that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Oh, man, that is like just some lame Star Wars humor. And if you like lame Star Wars humor, you're going to love The Rebel and the Rogue, the new podcast from the Electric Surge Network. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the inglorious experts. Oh, Darren, have we got a show today? Oh, Mark, I yes, am we so do.
0: excited. <laughs> Not only does he have the greatest stories, the greatest Renkitor I've ever met, but we haven't seen him in ages. This so, is like, true. this is like a reunion, slash, a roast, slash, a, a, a walk down Star Trek memory lane. I, I, you don't know how lucky you are. It might be
1: a run down Star Trek memory lane. I mean,.
0: You know, I don't know without drinks what it's going to be like, but I have a feeling (laughs) that people are about to learn some incredible things about Star Trek and about the world that they don't know from our very next guest. Uh, I'm so thrilled to welcome to the show Alan Spencer. Alan Spencer is... uh, my God. I mean, he has done so much. He'll tell you about how he got started in the business as a wee lad, uh, working on shows like uh, uh, Mork and & Mindy and The Nut House*. But he is the creator of the beloved, the justly beloved ABC cult classic, uh, Sledgehammer. did Bullet in the Face. He directed and wrote Hexed uh, for Sony. Uh, he has, uh, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with Star Trek? Well, you're going to find
1: out. Just wait. You'll find
0: you, out. You're going to find out. You know, we
2: don't want to bury the lead. So, uh, anyway, Alan, it's great to see you. Welcome to Inglourious Trexperts. Well, I, I'm glad to be here because I, I enjoy the show and I've heard my name on it a few times. No, I have. This is like Beetlejuice. you said it enough. <laughs>
0: Three times and you appear. Three times.
2: You know, but I didn't understand why I wasn't asked or something because <laughs> I was hearing my name. So I decided just to – the last time I was on a Comic-Con and you started to say my name and then you, you stopped. You're going to say something about Star Trek meals. Mark, about...
1: Mark covered my mouth.
2: That's what happened. I knew it.
1: <laughs> yes, because...
2: Um, Do not use uh, your name in vain. <laughs> on,
1: on my 40th birthday, Alan was gracious to give me a collection of um, the Star Trek Happy Meals from McDonald's, complete with all the toys and everything. And it was a stack of about... 30 of them. Yeah. And it was the most amazing thing ever and I I, I, I still have them and they are still in pristine condition. And, and that's and I, why I, was I here, thank you. Right before with Christmas. The fries and the Big Mac with still the prize, in. The mail. Well, the, the Big Macs were long gone. Oh, okay. But uh it, it was it was delightful and I love mm-hmm. those things.
0: He he he's a great gift giver in addition to everything Indeed. else. Um and you know, it's funny, I, I hadn't thought of this until um you know, we just sat here but you know when I met Alan it was because you were working on a pilot called Galaxy Beat. And at the time, I was writing for Fantastic and you had called me. You had a question, or to just discuss something. And that's how we met. My God, it's I like it feels so long ago now, but it was only it five is. years ago.
2: And <laughs> and, uh,
0: and, and I'm that very was...
2: proud of you, by the way. You have your show. Congratulations! Oh, thank you. It's been renewed on the CW, Pandora. I'm... Thank you. Thank you. And um, so you've done well for yourself, too. But, uh, you know, Alan, I have to say, you know, not that this
0: is a a roast or an honorarium for Alan, but, you know, Alan is a mentor. I mean, Alan, when we did our first movie, Free Enterprise, you know, Alan had so much... Great advice. Uh, you know, people may not know this. He's punched up a lot of movies. He gave us some 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 great jokes and some great lines, and really helped us finesse that script. Uh, so, I and mean, he, he is appears always in the film as well, yes. and he's in the film as well, uh, and and brilliant. That was completely ad libbed, and, and just uh, much like uh, your are your bit in bitten free
2: enterprise as well. So, uh, well, but I've fond memories of that talking to William Shatner about um, his direction on T.J. Hooker, because I, before doing Sledge, I was studying some of these things. He directed his, his first episode, and it had a record number of setups, more than you'd ever seen on a TV show. And I just remember his expression when I mentioned that to him, and he says, how do you know that? That's all
3: right,
0: well. God, it it, it it brings back memories. That was a crazy, because that was those three crazy nights where we were over at the chaplain stages shooting that, that party. And of course, I mean, you did like four or five different versions of that scene. They were all hysterical. Well, thank you. Um, anyway, so you said, still, the question remains, why is Alan here? Yeah, now we get it. You're friends with Alan Spencer. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about Alan is, and and he was at Paramount when Star Trek The Motion Picture was happening. But more importantly, that he became friends with Gene Roddenberry, and he's going to help us present another side of Gene that maybe you haven't heard before because they aren't contemporaries. Alan's much younger than Gene. Uh, they they didn't work together. And so Gene, at his least guarded moments, and he wasn't hitting on Alan, so <laughs> <in> his least <laughs> guarded moments was very honest and uh candid with a- a- Alan and he has amazing stories and again, I think we've talked about some other shows when we you know before we invited you or you invited yourself, which is even better but um when you were talking about you know obviously being there during Star Trek, the motion picture and you know and i, I-, I because you were doing Mark and Mindy at the time, so tell us a little bit about um sort of your background with star trek and and with gene and and just also your amazing story of how you were sort of the um you know uh um you know this child prodigy i mean in a way you you, you were working at paramount
2: when well, you were 16 at the time 17 15 15 yeah yeah i mean i was writing for comedians at a very young age um, through the mail and so i didn't meet these people i met rodney dangerfield i sold many many jokes to rodney dangerfield i was making a living actually for a long time writing for him And years later, I I met Rodney Dangerfield, and I said, Rodney, when I was 15, I sold you jokes through the mail. And he says, I remember those. They look like they were written by a (laughs) (laughs) 15-year-old. And one of the shows that I was on in Paramount, TV Guide had a review, said this looks like it was written by 16-year-olds. And I said, no, 15. They were close. (laughs) But what happened was Gary Marshall had uh, something called the Apprentice Writer Program at Paramount where anybody could come in. It was not in the Writer's Guild and you were on the writing staff of a show. And it was kind of an internship, except you were writing. And many, many people broke in, and they got trained, and then they got elevated to story editors and writers and producers. And Gary sat you down. All the new trainees would come in, and he said, "Um, right now you're going to be paid less than you're worth. In a few years, you're going to be paid more than you're worth. So... So I was floating on different shows then. There were all the different Gary Marshall and some of the Paramount shows as floated around and Mork was the hot show. But it hadn't got on the air yet, so and and nobody knew who Robin Williams was. I did. Some of the industry did. But on paper it it didn't sound very promising to a lot of people, and of course it exploded into something. But so when I started at Paramount, it was very, very young, conspicuously young. I think I was the youngest writer at that time. To be doing something like that. And I was nervous. I didn't know how to dress. And so I wore a ridiculous suit with a clip on tie. (laughs) I was trying to look older. Um, And I think I looked like Pee Wee Herman basically coming in there. And people were looking askance at me. Um, some people wonder if, when I was an executive son, somebody, some people thought I snuck on the lot, which is certainly viable. But when I went to have lunch in the commissary, I also didn't know anybody. I was standing there by myself and I felt like Carrie at the prom, uh, <laughs> that they, they, they were all laughing at me. There were some people pointing and having a go, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wondering who I was and, 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 you know, when you're awkward, when you have that, it, it, you know, people can feel it. And, either some people have empathy for you or other people will have a go at you. Right. And showbiz is very mean, and people are not nice. So I was standing there, and I felt ridiculous. And I looked over, and there was a man in a turtleneck in a sports jacket who was looking at me with empathy and kind of smiling fondly. And I made eye contact with him, and I knew exactly who he was. And he came over and introduced himself, and he said, Hello, I'm Gene Roddenberry. And... and <laughs> All of a sudden, the world got nice at that moment. I don't know what – he was just a gregarious guy. Yeah. And and, and, he, and I said, uh, I know who you are, Mr. Roddenberry. What a, what a thrill to meet you. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm a writer. And, and he didn't look askance at that. A lot of other people didn't like hearing that. He goes, oh, they're hiring him young. And he says, what are you working on? I said, a show about an alien visiting Earth. He goes, oh, I had some experience with aliens, you know. Yes, <laughs> and then I pulled my wallet out, the, the height of geekdom. And I had to show him that I had a photo of Spock in my wallet. And you should have seen his expression. <laughs> his eyes kind of glazed Aww. over. <laughs> but he was cool about it. He goes, I have a, I have a bigger one in my office. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he oh, said, I'm going to remember your name. You seem like a nice lad. He said, come over to my office whenever you have a chance say hello. So uh, all of a sudden, and it was interesting because everybody in the commissary saw me talking to him and they're just such whores. All of a sudden they are like, yeah. oh, oh. He must oh. be somebody. Yes. Yeah. He could be the head of the studio. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> in fact, Marty Feldman did that once. Marty Feldman was my, my good friend. There was a, a launch party for the last remake of Bojas. It was the first movie that he made for a multi-year deal. He had at Universal and they had a reception at a place called Dharma Grab. And all the Universal execs were there and agents and actors. They're all fetting Marty Feldman. And I was the youngest person. I was too young to drink. Of course, I was still. And people wondered, who is that Marty? And Marty told them that I was uh, like Lou Wasserman's son or
0: something. (laughs) (laughs) The chairman of MCA. Yeah, the chairman. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, I'll
2: be running the studio in a few years. So Literally everyone there was kissing my ass. It was so (laughs) horrific. (laughs) Bringing me drinks and offering me cars. Yeah. No, there wasn't any blow. They, they offered me clean needles. but uh, <laughs> So it was just sort of funny. The next day at the Paramount Commissary, I walked in, and Gene Ronberry, I think he was there with Susan Sackett, was having lunch, and waved to me. Hi, Alan, how's it going? And I was with some of the other writers from the show. They go, you know him? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knows my name but uh you know and I go to his office I took him up on the the offer now this was during a period too there there was a, a lull there when I think this could have been a crossover from the emeritus position that he was in you know there was a period there where he was just on the lot mm-hmm. answering fan mail and then the phase 2 was gearing up but I was around when it the the, the vaulting tins of the motion picture mm-hmm. and saw that happen mm-hmm. and it was like a uh, I mean, it was amazing. It was literally what from day to night as far as, you know, the level of importance and witnessed all that going on. And I was in a good position to barter because everybody wanted tickets to Mork and Mindy. So I actually had, hey, can you get me tickets? That sure. (laughs) You know, in exchange for that, I, I was, they actually put out a memo at Paramount because I was supposed to be an adult working on shows there. And they did say that they appreciated my interest in another production on the lot, but that I was not to spend Anything past my lunch hour there. I <laughs> they, they, they appreciated my interest in the Star Trek movie, but I do have a job to do wow. because I would lose track of time. Oh. I mean, you know, Robin Williams walked over; that was very funny. And he saw Persis Kambada, and he said, I, "And hit with the head shaved." And we were playing Ilya, and he said, "I wonder if that's the bald woman from Star Trek." <laughs> <laughs> and we saw Leonard Nemo in full makeup. He goes, "I think this could be the Star Trek set." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if it, it, people don't realize also a, at the time, Morgan Mindy was a huge huge hit for ABC. It was the number one show and in the country. And it helped really, I mean, this is coming on the heels of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, and and it was just uh, a
2: giant show for them. It made Thursday nights for mm-hmm. them. 40 million viewers. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So it was the the it was ruling the lot and and the Star Trek movie was in production during that time. And it was unusual at the time because this was one of the few movies that was shot the majority of it, I think the whole thing on a studio lot, yeah. on that lot, right. with a few exceptions, I yeah. guess. Yeah, Vulcan was, and then they ended up reshooting Vulcan on the in lot. In the tank. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I believe we saw that. I wound up seeing all the movies in production with the exception of five and six. I would drop by mm-hmm. and uh, and see those things, but it was phenomenal. And also, I experienced all the tension that was building up
3: sure.
2: with the problems the movie was encountering because The next building was Taxi, and somewhere around there was the Star Trek editing room. And I knew something was up because I dropped by, and I became friendly with an assistant editor and some other people. I knew something was wrong because nobody was editing. I mean, they were sitting around. (laughs) Waiting for footage to come in. You you got it. Uh (laughs) There was a cryptic statement being made. I go, how's it going here? And he goes, what do you mean? It's like defensive. (laughs) Uh, you know. I mean, how's the how's the movie looking or whatever? And he goes, What do you mean? I I, I said, Well, you're you're editing it, right? It it, it comes out in what, December seventh. The editor said, and I quote, a movie called Star Trek the Motion Picture will come out on <laughs> December seventh. <laughs> Very paranoid about she it. Send him over to write Morgan Mindy and you could have stayed over at Star Trek. Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know but it was interesting because one of my favorite memories of that time is one of the reasons I wanted to come here is there's a cottage industry a little bit. And I guess you probably talked about it here because you've been defenders of it, of of, of people occasionally bashing Gene Roddenberry, have their own agenda mm-hmm. to take shots at him, uh, casting aspersions about him as a writer or as a producer. And they all have their agendas. And nobody else gets this. I don't understand it. You know, Rod Serling doesn't get it. Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. There, are no, there, there are no books coming out going, uh, you know – Bashing these people. I feel it really started
0: with Herb Solo. Yes. You know, and that book, Star Trek, the real story or whatever it was
2: called, the untold story. And he made a video with it, too, where where he showed that he didn't have really a great on-camera presence. And (laughs) Dan even roped in Grant Tinker in there, who was more diplomatic. Mm -hmm. But there was an axe to grind uh, that some of these people certainly had about it. But the, the Herb Solo thing offended me. And then, of course, there are memoirs of assistants that are mistresses where you say, like, you know gene Ron by berry and i would take bubble baths i you know i i don't need to to see you know what 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 does that <laughs> I read that book. <laughs> yeah, oh, you did? <laughs> I, and some things you can never unsee, <laughs> you know, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, nobody's writing a book going like, Rod Serling would collect matches and make little <laughs> houses <laughs> and then burn him
0: down. And, you, know. you know, I guess in the case of Rod Serling, I think because he was the host, he was so intrinsically, it's the same way Hitchcock and Alfred Hitchcock presents, you know, nobody talks about Norman Lloyd, you know, nobody talks about, uh, you know, uh, his partners on that. But But with Star Trek, you know, everyone and their uncle takes credit for Star Trek. And Hitchcock, by the way,
2: there's some of that. Remember Saul Bass? Oh yeah, sure, yeah. Saul absolutely. Bass right. took, who's a talented? Was a talented man. He didn't need to take credit for. He didn't need he didn't to didn't take do. credit for it. He took credits. He kept claiming that he directed the shower scene. Right. right. And. Um, And everybody said that he wasn't there. It wasn't true. I remember he he would tell some story that Hitchcock looked at him and said, you take this. It doesn't sound like Hitchcock. (laughs) Yeah, no. No. I I think I'll go have lunch. You shoot the shower scene. But it's a contagious thing because then an AD that was on Psycho was offended and said, you know, I was there. Mr. Hitchcock directed every sequence that did not happen. And then they mentioned the Martin Balsam murder. And he said, well, I directed that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he did. He said, Hitchcock was sick that day, and he told me, you take this. they said, it's contagious. Oh my
3: goodness. That
2: might have been true, but then I heard Hitchcock reshot it or right, something. Right. He just wanted to keep, keep things going while yeah. he was... Well, Anthony Perkins would tell me, because he was a friend of mine, not to name drop, but... Um... Well, that,
0: look, I don't want to say that. The thing about Alan is, you know, over his Hollywood journey, he's like known an incredible array of people. So it's definitely not name dropping. You have this incredible sense of, of and what I love is you keep this living history of um, this industry alive, you know, and it's, it's
2: so the thing great is because...
1: it's not name dropping when they knew you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: that sounds that's true I guess. But no Anthony Perkins said that um, Hitchcock was the most fun director to to work with and that everything was storyboarded that he did get kind of bored because the movie was already made in his mind and he would nod off on occasion but he let them improvise Martin Balsam and him and overlap and he changed his camera shots for it but he said that was a relaxed fun set which was the last thing that I would think about <laughs> yeah. um, but he said that one point he went to Hitchcock and said um, you know what's this going to do for my career I've been doing romantic leads and I'm I'm the villain in this, I'm a killer, and I'm a transvestite. And Hitchcock looked at him and he said, Tony, it's only a movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, but even, like you said, even uh, there's a cottage industry in claiming I did this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. taking shots, and it's always when the people are gone. Right. And and I, I thought that Gene Roddenberry has borne the brunt of this more than... I've seen a documentary made, obviously, by one of the original cast members... And uh, remain nameless, but the bashing of Roddenberry. There is even a graphic of him as a uh, as a statue, kind of a Roman statue, and a cracking apart. So it's always this kind of the emperor has no clothes. But what I notice within it is that even people that had an axe to grind with him, they would have to concede about his talents as a writer under pressure. They would say something about Encounter at Farpoint. That was the most interesting part of it when he did that rewrite. And you've read his letters on there, which are brilliantly written. And, you know, but that's the one thing that that sort of bothers me because he did the right thing by, you want to have talented collaborators around you. They make it sound like there's something wrong with it. I did this, I did that. You want the best people. He would often give them credit. I never heard him bash Gene Kuhn. I heard him compliment him many times. Never. And Gene Kuhn never bashed, you know, Roddenberry. And he never took credit for it, nor should he.
0: He took this clay that that um, Gene had, you know, helped form and just sculpted it into an even better, you know, I mean, he was there to support Gene's vision, you know, for lack of a better word, and he did it brilliantly. And that's why, you know, we always sing the praises of Gene Kuhn, but there was there would have been nothing without Gene. And, and again, we go back to the original memos we've quoted many times on the show. I'm the genius of Gene Roddenberry uh, creating something that had never been seen on television before. You know, and it's not just about the progressive vision. It's not just about the optimism. But something as simple as you know, the turbo lifts or a computer that could answer questions. I mean, that's why people talk about Star Trek feels dated now. It's like, because Gene Roddenberry saw the future 30 years early, maybe not 300 years early, but 30, I mean, 50 years early. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, he truly was, and this term is thrown around a lot, genius, visionary. But in, in Gene Roddenberry's, those words apply completely.
2: Yes. And he embraced it in real life and walked the walk. Uh, Cause I was going to say one of my fondest memories um, he was the first person on Paramount to have a computer, mm-hmm. to write using computer on the lot, and it was a dot matrix. You probably know from that period maybe what sort it was. I'm mean, not. It may have been a Commodore. Was that it or something? But it was, mm-hmm. it was a big dot matrix printout, and uh, MS DOS. And what I remember is the way the paramount office his office was set up on an alley, so there was a window there, and he could talk to anybody walking by. He's very gregarious, have his window open. Okay. But I remember standing outside there along with Tony Danza. Um, Henry Winkler dressed as the Fawns, and a group of other people watching Gene Ronberry demonstrate a computer to all of us, wow. which was fantastic because the expressions of Tony Danza and Henry Winkler, they seem to be in character, you know, I mean like, <laughs> whoa, what's this? You know. <laughs> and I remember vividly saying to uh, another writer, I just said I'd never be able to work on that. It was so mind-blowing to see he was showing cut and paste, moving mm. a section around and pressing a button in the dot matrix coming out. He was writing the novelization mm, right. while they were shooting the movie. Yeah, so this was 78, 79 when he was writing on a computer. Yes, he was. And once again, see, here's another example. I've heard people claim he didn't write that novelization. Yes, he did. Of course he did. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've heard. Just some read people. it. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was amazed he was writing it while the movie was in production. Yeah. But then I learned later, you know, certainly what was going on. And I thought the dialogue in the novel was, was better than in the movie a lot of the time. Um, I thought it was wonderful actually. But he, he, you know, and he was paid a lot of money for it. $400,000. Yeah. Uh, in 1978. Wow. I
0: mean, uh, uh, the Livingston to this day is still complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're reissuing the novel. Or they title. just did. It just yeah. came out last week. Wow. Yeah. Did Gene give you any advice as a mentor that you've held you in good stead over your career any 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 anything about working dealing with networks or sort of um just in terms of producing
2: tv any insight that 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 or was it more a more of a personal kind of relationship it was more personal um i i I wouldn't deign to call him a mentor or whatever i'm sure that he mentored many people like Tracy Torme, I Yeah, think. I was and, just going to say, because I know, know
0: with Tracy, he gave him a lot of advice about the industry and about dealing with networks. I was curious if, you know. Yeah,
2: but since I didn't work for him, it was more friendly. And it was also what I got from him. And I think another thing that people don't realize with him is he was a really funny man. He could have made it as a comedy writer. I'd have tears in my eyes at some of the stuff that he would say. And I, I thought pretty maids all in a row was pretty wild.
3: <laughs> and he appreciated
2: comedy a, a lot and had a lot of respect for it. And he understood, he understood you know, Buster Keaton and Max Sennett and things like that. He had a wide range of interests. And he wasn't dismissive of comedy because there's some people that don't do it that, uh, you know, look down on it. And, in fact, he talked about how much he admired the SNL sketch of Elliot Gould Mm -hmm. Mm. doing the cancellation. What was that? With Jim Belushi where they cancel Star Trek while they're filming it. Yes. With Elliot Gould playing the NBC suit. And he found that inspiring and wrote to Lorne Michaels about it and heard back Mm. and told Elliot Gould how much that meant to him. Um, and that was an impetus about doing it. Certainly, again, it, that that fueled him in some way. Oh. That it was mainstream enough to put on SNL that everybody knew that the show had been given the shaft. Right. So, though there's another side to that too, because NBC feels that they stuck with it, and uh, you know they didn't feel that the the umbrage or whatever. But you know that's the 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 tug of war. And he, he took delight to that it was on NBC. That that wound <laughs> up <Right>. certainly. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know. You know. But he was. Very Machiavellian and mischievous and and very funny. I mean, you know, and he was very shrewd because, you know, all that time that Paramount just thought he was sitting there doting or whatever, he built up a fan base long before the internet. Right. Mm-hmm. Coalesced all these people that had his back, so they couldn't mess with him at all. And so it was not a waste of time. But I, I also think he genuinely liked the fans in the way that he. It was very protective, uh, certainly of him. But we would talk about like Elron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. and this feelings about Scientology um, what did he say because
0: you know it was interesting when I was interviewing um, Greg Strangis uh, about um, for the book about uh, uh, his version of Star Trek Next Generation which was uh, developed before uh, Gene's uh, he said he always felt that uh, or, or Gene had said this that he, he, he wished he'd come up with Scientology that Star Trek should have been religion he
2: was jealous of L. Ron Hubbard because he felt Star Trek was a better religion than Scientology <laughs> yeah well According to what Gene Ronberry told me, he said that L. Ron Hubbard pitched it to him mm. to turn Star Trek into religion. He said, you really want to explode with this, really make it stick? You need to do churches of Star Trek, and then you also won't have to pay taxes. Mm. So that's what he was pitching to him, and Gene thought that was horrific. Mm. He thought it was dangerous. I felt that that was part of the reason that he wanted to keep the conventions fun and light. I think you might have heard him talk about that, right? He was kind of protective and didn't want Paramount cracking down on people doing things right. non-profit. Right. Just keep it fun and light. Um, because he, he 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 knew he had a cult and had great responsibility. He, you know, he mentioned if I had a bad day or something, a hangover said the wrong thing, somebody could leap off a bridge, you know. it's he He was concerned about the control and manipulation of mm-hmm. minds. And he... He would say that politicians would come to him and offer him money to endorse them at a Star Trek convention—a lot of money—and oh. um, I'm sure these are people that didn't watch the show, just saying, "Oh, there's a contingency that sure. we could tap in." So he took it very seriously to be respectful and 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 responsive and answering these fans back. So, I mean, that was that was interesting to me and 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 a tad concerning. I mean, the idea that somebody cynically looked at Star Trek. And said, let's make that a religion. And then they backed into it to to try to create the science fiction novel to make it certainly uh, a religion. I I do know what he thought of L. Ron Hubbard's writing, but I I don't want to say anything because (laughs) 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 you've seen the movie. (laughs) But, you know, and Gene um, had strong aversions towards certain religious beliefs and worship and DNA and that was always a theme in the in, in the, the work yeah, yeah. And, and they and <laughs> you were the one writing about the the Captain Kirk fighting Jesus at some point um, that's the other thing that, that that paramount would had done with him a little bit in the wake of the movie making him a scapegoat for all of it and it wasn't mm-hmm. his fault um, but they would always say that he had a wild crazy idea about a, a, a sequel they shot down about uh, having to assassinate JFK to get history back on track, and in that script he doesn't. There's no assassinating JFK.
0: No, that, that was the shorthand that got promulgated through Starlog, and we've talked about right. this in the. But he never. Spock never assassinates JFK.
2: No, that no. Script. But they would put that out there like he was coming up with crazy ideas. The thing is, everybody gets angry about not taking risks. He was pretty fearless, mm-hmm. and. As I told people, okay, you, you think that sounds like a crazy idea. If, if it weren't a hit, if it hadn't been made, what if you said, hey, the Enterprise goes back in time to save two whales, makes a Save the Whales movie. You'd be rolling your eyes going, oh, please. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I didn't appreciate him being a scapegoat in the wake of the, the motion pitch. He's the one who took the hit for it. Absolutely, and he was basically shown the door and given this executive consultant position.
0: But you know, I, I know when you were there, one of the things you were privy to were um, soundstage full of... Um, Prints of Mm -hmm. the 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 infamous, you know, uh, them print literally uh, printing prints of uh, Star Trek to get them to theaters the day that the movie was premiering, and you
2: were there and eyewitness to all this insanity. I was working late, and I was actually feeling the anxiety level of these executives in those ensuing weeks. I was there when Don Steele, who was an executive there at the time, it was a few months before, um, had a big kind of expose, it was like it was a licensee meeting and it was outdoors and it was like a huge amount of people selling off, they were taking so much money in advance on this movie and the pressure from that, the blind bidding and everything, I was literally hearing the stories, if this thing missed the opening day by a day if it didn't open, the studio could go under and class action suits, the pressure on this was so extraordinary and you felt it building up and they were trying to mask it from the workaday reporters. I mean, now it would be on TMZ all the time. And uh, But, yeah, I, I remember seeing them bringing in the printing uh, for the, the the prints of the film, mm-hmm. doing it on a soundstage there. I was there hearing scoring going on, you know, 24-7. They had orchestras there. I think they were scoring at Fox, you said, but they had some orchestras there. I don't know if they were doing patch-up work, but there were orchestras on call, like, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty amazing. And, and, and the editors were certainly under pressure. I, I mean, I was hearing that the editor was the one who showed me the special effects when they were doing the V'ger flyover. They also told me originally the movie was going to be three hours. Did you ever hear this? No, no. It's going to be three hours. That's why I had an intermission. They said it was going to have an, an overture and an intermission. Mm. They were going to make it like a roadshow. Yeah. So it had an overture. It actually has an intermission. It's the V'ger flyover. But, um, <laughs> oh, jeez. But at one time, they were prepping theaters for that, telling them there would be an intermission in the middle right. of it. But they kept the overture, uh, certainly, on it. But the, the editor showed me the V'ger flyover, some of the effects that they were doing there. And he showed me he, it was a chocolate cake. One of the images in it is a chocolate cake. Somebody had a birthday there, and they they cut the cake, and there was a a slice. They said, this looks pretty good. Just put the camera over it. So they included a chocolate cake (laughs) as part of v (laughs) I was getting the inside privy of this, but I'd never seen anything like it the night before that uh, movie opened. Uh, The urban legend about them starting to play the movie in theaters without the final reels Mm might have come from me Mm -hmm. because I was around for that. I can tell you firsthand— one of the editorial staff brought the print personally wet to the National Theater in Westwood. I've never heard of such a thing. They were developed, They were sending it directly there. And there were also going to be plans for a 70-millimeter print, but they had to be scrapped. Right. You knew about that. Yeah. Um, so it was extraordinary. But I believe it was the – Nash. it might have been Westwood because they had the platter system and they had phoned ahead, like, don't build a platter of the reel. You're going to have to show – we'll get that other one in there. So it was, it was extraordinary. But, you know, the story of how I saw the movie was I – often you'd work late, 2, 3 in the morning when you were doing a, a live audience show. There was a particular night I was working late and I heard this incredible music. It might have been 2, 3 in the morning at Paramount. I was leaving – I think it was going to go to the comedy store or something, but um, I heard this music and I followed it and I walked into the Paramount Theater there. And despite the rush of this movie coming out, they still had to check the prints. They were pulling prints and making sure quality control. Yeah, you know, they had yeah, had to look sure. at it randomly. Yeah. So there was some quality control person, maybe one of the editor staff. I don't know who it was. He was in the dark. He's going to be there all night randomly checking reels. And I walked in. I heard this music. I walked in, and I, I, you know, it was the overture. And there was nothing on the screen. And all of a sudden, the title came up, and it said uh, a Gene Roddenberry prediction of a Robert Weiss film. And I went, I think this is Star Trek in motion <laughs> picture. Uh, 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 uh. Huh. And the guy knew I was there. And it's like, it's like, screw it. It's so late. He turned the light on so I could sit down. So I watched it out of sequence. Some of the reels. <laughs> And but I watched it the the fortnight you know before right. it came out. I saw the the movie. Sometimes they'd show two reels in a row the same thing, but I did see the whole film there. And I mean, the dawn came up, and I was riveted by it. It Was such a exciting thing. And I told Gene Romero later. I said I really enjoyed the movie. He goes where'd you see it? I said did you, where Where did you see? It? I saw it in town. And uh, how was the audience response? I said there was nobody there. And he went what? And I said I, then I told him what had happened. I said, <laughs> <laughs> I saw a preview. So mean, mean. <laughs> yeah. But it was, um, it was remarkable and the sigh of relief from that coming out. I, I mean, you've talked about it before, so I don't want to read it. It came dangerously close yeah. to not making it. it yeah. was, uh, but, you know, for him to take the hit on it, it was their own fault. Because they had that. Locking this release date, yeah. Yeah, and also developing it for so long. You're jumping from a a TV series to a motion picture, and you're not locking your script in advance. You're rushing everything. You have untried effects people. He didn't hire those effects people. That's right. And, you know, Robert Wise pulled that off. A lot of dedicated people. Without a director of that experience and that calm, they'd still be shooting it. Yeah, Yeah. it would have been Heaven's Gate. Um, But for him to take the hit on it. But, you know, once again, he was the figurehead. He he was always kind of – he had to protect that project because the executives just didn't understand. He told me once that a a top executive, Remain Nameless, um, asked him how how he came up with the idea for the lightsaber. Mm. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yes. Good. Good. He said he he told him, you're in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) You know and there was an executive who referred to when they did the cheaper movie the Wr- the Wrath of Khan he said the idiots don't know the difference between the budget it referred to you know fans as idiots so yeah. he was protecting certainly against it. there was some antipathy or a lack of it Sid Scheinberg had i think it told Leonard Nimoy saying that you can fill up conventions you'll never fill up theaters across the country so you know there was this antipathy towards this yeah. and he was very vigilant in protecting it and 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 rightfully so because if you don't I had a similar experience, and I've done a Blu-ray commentary for a movie I was peripherally involved with, which was called uh, The Return of Maxwell Smart, produced in 1979, released as The Nude Bomb. The disparity between (laughs) those titles (laughs) tells you what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a similar situation where it was going to be an M.O.W., and then the focus group said, let's make it a movie, and so they rushed it. They had 18 drafts trying to pull this together, Mm -hmm. and they had a start date. And the exec producer of the original show said, you need to wait. I'm dealing with another project. And, you know, I'm uh, this is about Star Trek, but the parallel is, you know, basically the same. When you have people that don't know the show and chaos going on. And if there's nobody protecting Chaos it, going on. Yes.
0: <laughs> get smart movie image. <laughs> yes, exactly. With,
2: spelled with a K. Um, if there's no one protecting this... Um, it all falls apart, and the original creators get the blame. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about that because it's a good analogy because, of course, and for a
0: lot of people who grew up on Star Trek, particularly in syndication, they also grew up on Get Smart. And, you know, much like you became friendly with Gene Roddenberry, Leonard Stern was somebody who was super important to you Barry. as well. And I wonder, yeah, I mean, I and, and, and you know, with uh, Nude Bomb coming out, uh, uh, on uh, Blu-ray in a couple of months, which you were uh, super involved with, and 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 uh, I, I, you know, I'd love to just hear, you know, maybe a little bit about that experience as well. I mean, yeah, it's Inglorious spurts, but uh, hopefully, people be, you know, you know, we well, can be smart spurts for the first yeah. time ever.
2: Well, the the parallels are basically the same, in a lot of ways. It was a ten year span. You're going to do a movie. And movies are different than a TV show, and executives don't want it to be television. Right. So they're bringing in elements to it. in in the In the case of the motion picture, which is justifiable, they were emphasizing special effects, mm-hmm. which you had to do in the wake of Star Wars. And in this, in the case of the nude bomb, because Mel Brooks's name was on it, and um, um, comedy movies at that time were outrageous, they were bringing in elements to make it a movie that that wouldn't fly on TV. They assume that having characters curse makes it a movie. That's oh, right. something that you are bringing nudity in and things like that to it. And the audience hated when Maxwell Smart cursed anything that was out of character. And you had the star who is a rag doll between the feature people wanting to please them because they promised Don Amsey is going to be a big movie star. It was a very heady thing. They had his photo up in the commissary alongside Burt Reynolds and Paul Newman mm. And they're promising in the world, we're going to do these movies once a year and you're going to do other things. And then you have the TV people, the Leonard Stearns and Bill Dana and Arnie Sultan, you know from then, saying this isn't right. And you're and he was a rag doll, certainly in the midst of it. And then there's no experts on it. Uh, you know, um, Clive Donner, the director of that, had only seen the pilot of got smart. He didn't mm. see anything else. Mm. In his defense, he didn't have time because he was dealing with 18 drafts. They're still pulling the the script together or whatever so you know I don't I've heard people say that Robert Wise wasn't that familiar with Star Trek well I don't think there was time necessarily to like Harb Bennett had time to watch all 79 episodes also he wasn't being called in there to make a TV movie and he had more experience than anybody in feature films so, you know, I think that was part of the reason that, that, that Gene became the scapegoat as well, too, because he's the figurehead, certainly, of it. So if we remove him, then we're going to have more freedom to do what we want to do. But thankfully, Harv Bennett came in and was respectful towards the original show, sat and watched them all. And I thought Nick Meyer was the best thing that could ever happen uh, to that franchise, bringing in... My problem with I see what's happening a lot now is just people are so reverential coming in. Wow, we're working on this, and they don't bring any fresh and new to it. Gene... His mantra that Michael Piller always said on The Next Generation was, if they got stuck, he would say, think of something new. Come up with a new race of aliens. Don't go back. Don't reprise. Don't just keep going back. Mm -hmm. Come up with something new. Come up with something fresh. Take a risk. And that's the best thing you could do. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's wonderful that way. But, um, you know, oddly enough, then, you know, they did a TV movie that I helped set up later after the nude bomb called Get Smart Again, which was truer to the original premise this would have been like doing the Wrath of the Craw or whatever, but <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, but you know, Get Smart was of its time, and it wasn't ahead of its time because right. the spy craze then it fit in perfectly. So any attempts to bring it back, the 2008 movie, only only Austin Powers did that properly by having him freeze dried and coming out and still rooting it in the 60s. So, but Star Trek was something very different because it was ahead of the curve, and it and it didn't get the the full run, and so it coming back felt very very uh, different. But um, the other thing that Gene Roddenberry would he would protest to certain things, but then he would say, "Hey, that worked." So he would uh, admit that. And there was look, you know what? Lightning struck twice. I don't care what they say the, you know the next generation it struck twice. And whenever they're stuck, they have to go back to what he created. They have to go back to those original characters or they have to go back and do Picard, or certainly now. Mm -hmm. And those are both, nothing after him is hit to the same degree. They're not pop culture
0: staples. I mean, there's a reason when J.J. uh, did his movie, you know, he redid Kirk, Spock, and McCoy because the average person on the street knows who they are. To a lesser extent, people know who Picard and Riker and Data are. Beyond that, the person on the street, not the diehard Star Trek fan, has no idea who the characters in Voyage are. And as much as we love Deep Space Nine, who the people in Deep Space Nine are, they know the original Star Trek and 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 to an equal or lesser extent they know Next Generation. And that's that's it. Yes. You know, those are the Han, Luke, and Leia
2: of of Star Trek. And they make a mistake, a lot of people, thinking that people don't watch anything that's called Star Trek, and then people that don't watch anything science fiction, they say it's science fiction. People like those characters on the original show and The Next Generation. And I thought it was interesting that when you read um, Gene's wonderfully written letter reading The Riot Act Mm -hmm. to the star egos on the original show, I thought it was interesting that both casts of the original show and The Next Generation, it was William Shatner who accurately said that there's no time to prepare a character when you're doing the grind of a TV show and people wind up playing variations of themselves, which is true. And having worked with Don Adams, he was very much like Maxwell Smart. Mm. I could say it. I mean, he had said, "I can handle this stunt myself. I don't want." And they said, "Please, no, use the stunt, but no, I can do it myself. I can handle it." And he didn't turn his head at the right time and broke his nose. And so that's exactly <laughs> like Maxwell <laughs> Smart. And so, which was very endearing. But you know, if you listen to interviews, uh, you know. I'm sorry, Leonard Nimoy still sounded like Spock to me in a lot of the yes. ways, diction and everything. And, Absolutely. And Shatner sounds like Captain Kirk when you hear him. So what I thought was interesting is that that letter spoke to a family of characters um, that loved each other but had a lot of conflict. Right. And then the next generation didn't have conflict, and that cast got along better than anybody. Yes, but both shows right. worked, and it, it mirrored, the casting mirrored what was going on with within the show yeah, yeah that's a good point point. and you know he cast both shows i know he had help obviously there are other people there sure. and i've always thought that rick berman has addressed gene Ronberry very properly mm-hmm. you know he's always spoke well michael Pillar always spoke certainly well of, aware of the foibles. and you became pretty friendly with michael piller very much so yeah very much so and the thing that's missing to me um uh, to this When somebody comes in like Nicholas Meyer, who makes Time After Time and writes The 7% Solution, they know how to entertain. And then they bring that to Star Trek and they make it personal. They put a stamp in it. You know, they change it to a certain degree. You can't change it so much. But they're bringing something different to it. And it's usually, you know, J.J. Abrams did that, I felt, in a way, by making a movie. That was the first time there was a movie budget. His bringing a love of Star Wars to that and making something on that level, no matter what you think of the movie. That was a movie. And it was the first time something had been produced in a in a while that sure. since, since the first. Um, but Michael Piller made the writing personal. You know, when he wrote the best of both worlds, he was debating whether or not to stay with the show, and he gave that trait to Riker. Right. And I don't see people putting their personal traits into yeah. it. They watch the show and then they're they're writing it again. Well, and, you make a good point. I mean, and and nobody
0: understood how to do Star Trek better than Gene you know maybe there were people who could do it better but you know he he set the template he understood it better than anybody and the good thing is is we have gene here to tell us his philosophy of how you do good star trek and yeah. maybe this is something that well, let
2: me explain to. the one uh, before you do that what happened uh, what i when you talk about mentorship this is the one thing uh, which is the reason i wanted to show show up here one of many reasons besides you being my friends i would talk to gene about how to give notes and and how he would approach this. And he'd also talk about his frustrations making the movie about when they would ignore what he was saying that was by road or talking with a Paramount executive who looked at his watch mm. during their lunch. Because, you know, contractually they had to talk to him. Did you I don't know if you knew this. Mm. They had to have a certain block of amount of time that he would be met with and consulted upon. Mm. And, and one executive who I I know who he is, was looking at his watch during the lunch, you know, and then Roddenberry said, Am I keeping you? <laughs> <laughs> so he would write these notes and there's a lot of egos going on Harb Bennett in an interview in one of the books it said something about Roddenberry's notes were mostly ranting and nothing much we could use there was some resentment there because I realized a lot of the resentment and the axe to grind comes from it's always going to be genes like you said it will never be yours you're only you're always going to be toiling. You're custodian yeah you're toiling in that field mm-hmm. you know and unlike the other other quote unquote franchises which I think is a nasty name um, you know, it's always going to be Ian Fleming's James Bond. You do your thing, but it's not going to erase that. Anything done with the Twilight Zone, you know, the, the specter of uh, Rod Serling's going to be there. And re- I mean, have you, I don't know if you talked about this. You know, Rod Serling and Gene were friendly, right? Yeah, we've never talked about that, actually, on the oh. show. Not on the show. Yeah. They admired each other and they were friendly and they would have, they were friends. And Gene Roddenberry was personally asked by the family to eulogize Rod Serling at his funeral which he did. And I think that speaks to the mantle of of Gene Ronberry and how he was revered by that man. Uh There was nobody nobody better in the industry, they felt, to eulogize him. And Gene delivered a beautiful eulogy. There are excerpts of it online. I asked uh, Rod Serling's daughter if she had it, and she said she didn't, Um, but she said it was a beautiful eulogy. He talked about, I miss the man. He says, you're going to talk about his writing. And he says those are the tools he used Uh he says the typewriter's still here I miss the man Mm -hmm. but he believed in the optimism optimistic view of the future and he felt that Serling was more pessimistic Mm -hmm. certainly about things but he felt within that pessimism and some of the twist endings and the downcast he was trying to teach us to be better so he said that was his view Mm -hmm. certainly of optimism and a third season episode The Empath yeah um, even though Gene was gone for the third uh, season uh, Serling I, Gene had said something about Serling had a conversation about I would never have ended it that, that way were the aliens in there that are uh, it, it was like a twist he said, he, he said you gave to serve man a happy ending mm. <laughs> yeah. and so I would, I would love to have heard their lunches yeah. you know, yeah. uh, together but back to this Gene Ronberry shared with me some of the notes that he gave on the movies after, um, you know, I'd heard about that. And I read them, and they're phenomenal. And I think I gave a copy to you. Mm-hmm. And they weren't ranting. They're were no, brilliantly no. written. Very astute. Very astute. Everything was correct. Mm-hmm. And one of the notes, um, the set of notes that you're going to read from there, Darren, I gave to J.J. Abrams. Personally, mm. I gave him my personal copy of it. I had a meeting at Bad Robot And I sent those later. And uh, J.J. Abrams apparently stopped whatever meeting he was going to have. He was in pre-production for the the first Star Trek reboot, stopped the meeting and read them. And I gave, I said, I've made copies. I feel you should have these originals. They used so many notes. These were notes given for the search for Spock Mm -hmm. that weren't used. He implemented them. In this, this Star Trek movie, and I heard they started trying to seek out more of Roddenberry's notes on the movies. Um, uh, before you read that, two of the keynotes that Gene gave, uh, which I enjoyed, he, he, in the search for Spock, Scotty rigs the Enterprise to go on autopilot, saying a trainee and two monkeys. Go yeah, right. yeah. Gene Roddenberry says, you mean to tell me that this massive starship doesn't already have an automation <laughs> right. to run in its own? <laughs> right, right. If in case all the crew is injured right. or killed, that it wouldn't. He says, "You mean you have to do this? How you know?" He, he said that how juvenile certainly uh, this. But he also said the one I thought that was most astute. He said, "You've forgotten what the character Spock is all about." He said, "You're writing him as a pop culture icon, mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a outcast half breed, right. and you're mistaking him for the response towards Leonard Nimoy." as the character and posters on wall as opposed to why he was popular in the first place. Well, and, and you just hit the nail on the head. You said, Bennett resented
0: Roddenberry, and we know Leonard did as well. Right. So why? It's stuff like this. You know, Hart Bennett wrote Star Trek III, and then he gets this, the, the you know, the 20 pages or 18 pages of notes on everything that's wrong with it. And I would say probably 80% of that is absolutely correct. Right. And so, of course he 's going to resent that it 's the same thing where Leonard thinks i'm finally in the driver's seat you know and and you know Leonard's saying very respectfully, I might say that those men are very respectful yes. you know he 's not saying you know i 'm all seeing all knowing he's saying this is my perception, and he's and, trying to be helpful and it was almost to uh to uh, complete uh, almost everything's ignored, and I think that goes to when we did our Star Trek Three episode, everything we feel is dopey and doesn 't work, and it's not taking Star Trek seriously enough. It's stuff that Gene Roddenberry addresses brilliantly in that 18-page-ish uh, uh, memo where he, he you know, basically says, this is everything that you're doing wrong. And all he's saying is – he's not saying you shouldn't move forward. He's saying this is stuff you can do to fix it. This is right. correct.
2: And he also, by the way, um, one of the notes in Star Trek 3 they used in Star Trek 4 and he didn't get credit for it. He said if you're going to destroy the Enterprise, you have to – give the promise of a new ship, a new commission. He wanted them to take the Excelsior from Star Trek Three, and at the end rename it that. But they wound up, the ending of Star Trek IV was a note that he gave, certainly in Star Trek Three. But the what, what, what Darren is going to channel now, what I thought was the most interesting part of those notes, is he predicted the decline of what was going to happen to Star Trek, which eventually did. I mean, I don't know how you evaluate the current state of it. Um, but he it certainly did crash and burn there for a certain period, was dormant. And he was warning them about what eventually certainly happened, and that's the section that I thought was amazingly prescient, prescient yeah. and, and showed that he knew he, he, his finger was on the pulse of this at all times. So this is a section of the notes where he predicted what would happen with Star Trek.
1: A short digression now to something which may be of value. While puzzling over format questions in this draft, I realized that no single one of my comments concerned an item absolutely necessary to the Star Trek format. Yet the sum of these items were clearly very important. With that, I finally began to understand a bit more about why people have had so many difficulties with the Trek format over the years. Most TV shows have had a format which is pretty much the sum of the main characters, their location and situation, plus the kind of drama or comedy intended. The character of Star Trek, however, resulted in a format which extends beyond just those elements, a fact which may explain its unusual effect on some audiences. Its format includes the main characters, the starship, the space adventure, but these are only the more visible parts of a mosaic kind of format which includes many other things, both large and small. Formats of this type are somewhat analogous to the feather mosaic which makes a bird capable of flight. While the important large quill feathers are necessary, as with a drama's main character and place and situation, there is also a network of smaller feathers which are equally necessary, even though no single one of them is vital to flight. Plucking a handful of these, however, will make flight noticeably clumsy, and after that, each succeeding small feather lost may be the one that makes flight impossible.
0: Wow. So that is exactly...
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, we'll, to, we'll let it speak for itself. Nitpicking. Yeah. You know,
2: all the stuff that he was certainly uh, talking about. What... Um, the other aspect uh, that I wanted to bring up is that um, a couple of points. Gene, and and this is the other feeling, certainly, I have about this. And at one point, I was the young green writer, and, uh, and so maybe it applies to me, but Gene was writing from life experience.
3: Right.
2: It was very personal. And when we would talk and sometimes have drinks in the office, and sometimes I wasn't alone. I mean, it was kind of, there was a certain magic hour you could go in there and he would hold court, and it was really a lot of fun. But... There's a big difference when somebody is writing science fiction that is recounting stories of, of being a cop or a Pan Am pilot, surviving plane crashes in the Syrian desert, okay. telling people to play dead as bandits pick through them. He was a real adventurer, and that's what he was pulling from. And the, the thing that he said that made me in, it, laugh So hard. I was near tears. It was a little tipsy. I mean, I think we went to Lucy's Al-Adobe or something. (laughs) Right across the street. Yeah, (laughs) he said that uh, there's a little difference in the science fiction of, you know, I'm writing from, you know, my fantasies, what kind of airline pilot I want to be. There's a little bit of a difference, you know, if you're writing from that as opposed to, you know, sitting Modesto jerking off watching Buck Rogers, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, look, it's exactly...
0: You know, we talked about in the past. It's like back then, you know, writers lived life, and now writers live television. You know, they write what they know, watching, growing up, watching TV. Right. But um, you know, this was a guy. You know, he lived life. He was such a large in life figure. He lived life because he knew how fragile it was, having fought you know, during World War II, having gone down on a plane where he could have easily died. I mean, he had true life and death experiences. So, you know, if he had these huge appetites, how can you begrudge him that when he's a guy who, like, tasted death, you know, and and, and barely survived, you know, to tell the tale?
2: Yeah, he talked about the episode, the, is it, um, the Galileo 7. Mm -hmm. And he said that some people wrote to him and said... um, Look, people died. There were people that didn't make it through. People died in the planet. How can you end the episode everybody sitting around laughing? You know, it was like a light episode. And, and he said, That's how you survive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's celebrating being alive. He said, You're celebrating who's still with us and you got through it. And he said it's a relief of tension. He yeah. said you know, he said, We laughed after we made it out of the plane crash. You could make jokes about it, but he said that's how you survive. He said, otherwise you're gonna spend the rest of your life screaming. Right. And he felt that he felt that was a perfect moment of showing. He always stressed that this is a family of characters. And I remember I was doing the second season of Sledgehammer when The Next Generation debuted. And I stayed in the office um, because it debuted in primetime. And some of the other writers uh, stayed, too, and watched it. And I already knew who Patrick Stewart was. Brent leaped off the screen. And the first thing, it was like, he's got a great family of characters here. I mean, and he's certainly, a course, corrected later. But, you know, they didn't have to recast. Mm -hmm. Those Mm -hmm. characters stayed true themselves. They deepened them. But it was the template was certainly there. And what I remember is I called him the next day at Paramount and told him how much I enjoyed it. And I said, I remember that you said at one point uh, they could never pay me enough to do a series again. And I said, here you are doing it. What changed your mind? He said, they paid me enough.
1: (laughs) 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 Oh, I love that.
0: Hysterical. And, you know, obviously, I mean, this is something that you love because, you know, both Questor tapes and Data were a huge influence on you when you did your CBS pilot, Tomorrow Man, with Julian Sands, which I don't think gets enough credit, you know, as a wonderful uh, pilot that, that, you know, has the DNA of that in his bones.
2: Yeah, I mean... I'm I'm still, look, his unsold pilots, just because a pilot is unsold, there's nothing wrong with it. The Quester tapes and Spectre, mm-hmm. both were terrific. And, and you know, obviously the seeds of data in Quester and Spectre was long before, I guess, X-Files. But, I mean, that was like Sherlock Holmes and the supernatural. I often wondered how, and then wasn't it, was it, there was Earth 2 and there was Genesis and, 2 right. or something? Right, Planet Earth and Genesis Planet, 2, right. right. You know. But if any one of those sold, I often wondered what different course he would have gone on, right. you know, if you have the, uh, you know. The... I don't know if he would have come back to Star Trek if those had been successful. I, I don't think he would have. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think he would have had the time. I think, you know, if they were, somebody would have come back to it probably at some point to mine the, the past thing, similar to the nude bomb because – the, the success of Mel Brooks away from that meant that they wanted to do anything associated with him right. certainly right. again and then they botched it of course but um, but you know that that's why the next generation was all the more important to him and, and he had been out in the wilderness and you know lightning struck twice but um, you know it feels good uh, you know mm-hmm. All his notes, apparently, I think people should were combing you know for them his notes on the movies. you should probably publish these because it's just about good writing, certainly yeah. as well too and um
1: I would like to do an entire episode of reading his notes, sure,
2: from the movie i can't I, wait to listen to it. <laughs> i think I think
1: it's fascinating
2: it is and I thought my favorite thing about the j j s movie was the depiction of Spock being beat up and bullied and and those aspects that he sure. was pushing, absolutely. absolutely, you know, for. I mean, Gene thought it was ridiculous for Spock to be treated like a rock star in his home planet, right? Right, right, <laughs> coming yeah. back in a white yeah, robe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: and,
2: yeah. and
0: again, that goes to your, you said it yourself the Star Trek 3 note, which is you're confusing the pop culture icon of Spock with Spock in the show. Well, and
1: that's when they had that scene where the big processional passed all the uh, uh, Vulcan people taking him to the temple where the uh, uh, Faltorpan was going to take place. And there was a scene where a little Vulcan child said, we love you, Mr. Spock. yes. And thank goodness they removed that because that is ludicrous. Oh,
2: I remember that he said too, by the way, uh, because his religious comments were so funny, the movie was in development for so long, you know, to, re- to bring it back, for yeah. so long. And he-, he likened it to a crucifixion. <laughs> he said, you're aware it's quite an honor, but it doesn't feel good. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, I mean, that's oh the thing God. about him. He was really funny. I mean, yeah. he could do those conventions and be really funny, but he had a great wit. He liked Sledgehammer, which meant a lot to me. And he liked it because he said, you're cloaking your message. You're saying things within. You're doing the O. Henry yeah. So he enjoyed that I was putting messages. Yeah, but you became a right-wing conservative icon uh, yes. when you were parodying all that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know,
2: so you know, this is true. And he was very progressive. I mean, I think, you know, he wanted to have gay characters on the show uh, involved, and they were pushing back. So, I mean, he was not old school. If anything, his thinking was so radical sometimes it would take them years to catch up, certainly with him. But he certainly made me laugh when they dedicated a building to him at Paramount he said, um, "I get paid to daydream every day, and I go to an office. and You know, Paramount pays me more than I deserve. And he said, and they make for themselves more than they deserve.' <laughs> so he was constantly irreverent. And um, but you know, I, you know, I, it's not my genre that I certainly toil in, but uh, you know, I like the original show that that cast, and I like TNG." It's just because I like hanging with those characters, and I haven't seen that since. I mean, I appreciate Deep Space Nine is different and that they're doing something different there, and that works. And uh, But, you know, ever since then, I you know, the darkness, the mythology, I don't need to know the history of the Federation as much. I just kind of like – Patrick Stewart and William Shatner drove those shows. They're surrounded by great people, but the personalities of the captains uh-huh. certainly, uh, you know, said a lot. And Ron Murray would talk about that a lot, about an airline pilot, about – the, the confidence that is instilled mm-hmm. when you get on a plane by a certain he said if you saw Shatner in the cockpit you'd just be calm through a flight you could right. be like weathering a storm or something like and if that voice came on there everything's all right just stay calm you know? <laughs> right. and he said that was the kind of air, airline pilot he wanted to be so uh, you know
0: but you say I mean it's not this genre you're associated with obviously you know uh, you, you know you're very associated. Uh, with your success in comedy, and of course, uh, you know, a mentor in um, Mel Brooks, uh, which is a whole other story. But yet, you, you've you dabbled in sci fi besides the Tomorrow Man. I mean, you know, we mentioned Galaxy Beat, and you cast, what, Gregory Harrison yeah. for the Logan's Run TV series? Yes. You know, so, I mean, you, your love of sci fi, you know, uh, comes true even in a lot of the, the comedy that you, you you do. And that's another show that I can't believe didn't get picked up because that was a wonderful pilot. And... Well,
2: you know, certainly everybody feels Galaxy Quest was the their favorite Star Trek movie, so yeah. the comedy addressed so much. And I guess they're going to do a fathom screening of it and they show a documentary... Yeah. Uh, about the behind the scenes of that, because once again, by what that went through through the editing, mm-hmm. people didn 't understand Galaxy Quest some of the executives didn 't understand Star Trek and right. what it means to people it 's not one thing people can look at it differently and see different things in it i mean it it, it what was interesting about gene 's note in there he 's just saying it 's many things, and you can pluck some stuff out and it 's still going to be fine, but you take too much of it mm-hmm. and then it's it's it 's lost i i you know I, I, I think it's interesting, the excitement for Picard and seeing Brent come back and all of that. But, yeah. you know, once again, you got to go back to his DNA every time as... as as you should. But you kind of, it's interesting, are the gene whisperer, because
0: you talk about, you know, you had a wonderful relationship with Michael, but also, you know, many of the executives who were involved with some of the later Star Trek pic- pictures where, you know, you proved to sort of be, a, a, I guess enough time has passed to say you were sounding board to yeah. a lot of these people. I with gave a, a title to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it was like you were sort of like this secret, like, advisor behind the throne. And... um uh you know michael really you know uh, valued your input and and uh, respected you you know so much because you know i think there was always this ch- even in the later years where star trek started to get more respect the chip on their shoulders like nobody in the industry knows who we are nobody takes us seriously so when somebody with like you who's had so much success comes in i'm a huge fan of the show they're like really you know
2: yeah. Re- you <laughs> what well, i learned with the actors and certainly i learned that when they were doing the movie star trek actors Want to talk about everything else in show business except Star Trek? They are happy to talk. They want to talk about anything, like sure. their horoscope. They're happy. They want to talk about Star Trek. They're yeah. grateful that you know they are and want to change the subject. You right? Talk about politics or whatever. Because but. when
0: you talk to Brent, you talked about his
2: work and everything, but <laughs> oh yeah, he's a great singer, Broadway, a huge talent. I consider him up there, Gene Wilder and Danny Kaye level performer. He's wonderful. And uh, and Patrick Stewart, when I met him, was talking about Shakespeare, and he his posture changed. Because I was talking about I, Claudius, and I saw some Shakespeare... He stood up straight and said, there are a few of your kind that knew my work from before.
3: (laughs)
0: And I
2: think, you know, I hadn't thought
0: about this in a long time, you might have been the one to give us the advice when we were trying to get Shatner for free enterprise, don't talk to him about Star Trek. Because we famously, you know, we talked about Saturday Live, we talked about him on Fridays, all this stuff. Never, you know, I said we want... You because you were in Star Trek, but because you're a great comedian, you know, and all your great comedic work, and obviously that 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 worked. Um, I could always
2: talk to Anthony Perkins about Psycho. He didn't want to talk about it all the time, but since I knew all his other work and stage, right. I enjoyed him in Les Misérables, and I could talk about his writing last year. I, the floodgates anytime I wanted to ask something about Psycho he was happy to <laughs> you'd earn the right at yeah, that point the right he'd yeah. bring it up which uh. I was impressed certainly <laughs> my favorite thing is I called him once I've, it was a business call it happened to be on Halloween <laughs> I said I guess I better let you go and he goes I, I, I don't want to keep you he goes why and he says well I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of you know it's Halloween I'm sure you got kids coming to the door and he says not a lot of trick-or-treaters come to this house <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my God. I
2: did tell him when they were making the sequels to Psycho. Is, wouldn't word of mouth kill this motel? Wouldn't somebody not stay? <laughs> I guess they didn't have Yelp then, but then they wouldn't get bad Yelp reviews because their victims are dead.
1: <laughs> yeah. They'd let out a Yelp. Yeah, they would. <laughs> you
0: know, for fans of our sister show, 430 movie, we, we, we have to, we, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't say we owe a debt of gratitude to Alan Spencer because Alan was the one who introduced us to the Oscar.
2: That's correct. You which know, is coming out on Blu-ray. Which is That's coming correct. out on Blu-ray,
0: and, and we've talked about the Oscar a lot on 430 Movie. What it was, uh, you know, it was on our Films About Filmmaking Week. We talked about it on Guilty Pleasures. But you know, Alan was the one who hit us to the Oscar. Absolutely. And uh, if you know, we we should do a whole another episode on Pretty Maids All in a Row. By the way, oh, we 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 should.
2: Tarantino loves that movie. I, it's what ten favorite movies of all time. He said. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's. Gene Roddenberry would love the idea that Tarantino trying to take a crack at, uh, and he knows the show well, yeah. you know, and what he would bring to it. He all Gene wanted people to bring different things to it, and the you know these interviews. I mean, Har Bennett did a great job and everything, but you know, Har Bennett's I think angst to grind is that he wanted he wanted Gene Roddenberry to bless him and saying you're the the man now, and he never said that. No, yeah. and he can't. And why know, would he? Why yeah. would he? he Plus. Gene was legitimately,
0: and you talked about this at the beginning of the episode, bitter probably about how he was put out to pasture and blamed for the things that went wrong on Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was very unfair. Correct. Um, Because, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, and they they made him the producer, but he had no experience producing a huge multi-million dollar motion picture. But Uh, it was also,
2: listen, it was their fault as far as they had a release date. It was a train that was out of control. Yeah. And if they, if they could have waited a year and developed and locked a script. But, you know, like I said, I saw it on The Return of Maxwell Smart. You can't take an M.O.W. and just bump it up to They're a the movie. They're the ones that took
1: the brakes off the truck. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: You know, and it, it was called The Return of Maxwell Smart. And then they called it The Nude Bomb because Jennings Lang wanted a provocative title. He made a movie called Swashbuckler. Um, and he wanted to title that one The Blarney Cock because that was the name of the ship. I thought that would be more provocative and get people talking. Sure it get talk. you know, it would be playing at the Pussycat Theater if it's called the Blood Pirate movie. I mean it it was just amazing. So they call it the Nude Bomb. It was going to be called Would You Believe the Nude Bomb, so at least it was that. Right. And then they dropped it and put out a memo saying it's called The Nude Bomb. And Don Adams left a message on my machine saying it's being called the Nude Bomb, and I think the foreign title is We're Screwed. And <laughs> and uh, But you know, what happened afterwards, and this is studio thinking and this is what it applied to. They had to go back to the Lock movie and put before the Universal logo. It's time to get smart because the marketing department said there's no title of "Get Smart" or anything to do right. with "Get Smart" yeah. in this movie. Right. right. And so this is the kind of thinking. Imagine if they released Star Trek: The Motion Picture. This is their thinking, and they just called it The Motion Picture. <laughs> right, right. Right. Don't call it Star Trek. Say, well, well, the poster has the ship. They'll probably figure it out that it is. But you know, it's a runaway train. And, and the thing is. Everyone else becomes an expert on it, uh, or This is what a movie yeah, now. Yeah, they start yeah. lecturing, mm-hmm. but you know, Star Trek the motion picture. It made money. It was it still made su- it made a lot of money. But before we get to motion picture, mm-hmm. nude bomb. How did Battlestar Galactica get into the nude bomb? How did the uh, was the they the, use the Universal Studio backlot tour? Oh, <laughs> that was contingent uh, for those that know the nude bomb features a dubious sequence. It's the reason it. it got nominated for the Razzie, first year of the Razzies. And I I think the critical consensus was so against it because there was some product placement put in there. Now, it was a common thing in M.O.W.s back then, probably shows, or TV shows, they have episodes where they shoot in their back lots sometimes. That was a common thing. So... That was in the uh, M.O.W. version called The Return of Maxwell Smart, which was going to be an M.O.W. that was going to be part of the NBC mystery movie, The Wheel That Mm -hmm. Was Columbo, McCloud, Macmillan and Wife, which was produced by Leonard Stern. And it was a fabulous script. It's a great script. And I'll buy the Blu-ray and you'll hear even more certainly about it. So the excitement for that script was building up more and more. And that had a sequence involving the Universal tour, a little sequence. And it was a small sequence. I think it was just like a stopover to Universal, and it was tied in there some way. So when they blew it up to a movie, they blew that sequence up into, I think we clocked it when I was doing the commentary. I think it's 9 to 12 minutes. (laughs) Spent
3: at the Universal
2: tour. Uh, 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 uh. I had trouble doing the commentary for it. I was thinking of things to say, I had to start doing trivia because uh, you know I couldn't t- spend ten minutes just going. This is horrible. <laughs> it's the worst product placement. It's so blatant. I mean, it's <laughs> just. It's like if Star Trek 4 to save the whales, who goes. That would have been great just saying McCoy going, we need to stop by Paramount first. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, remember at the end of the movies in the 70s and 80s, it used to all
0: end the Universal movies. When in Hollywood, visit Universal Studios, you yeah. know? And that was like 20
2: minutes. Of yes, like... it was redundant. In fact, I say that at the end. The message of the movie is when you're in Hollywood, visit Universal Studios. They cut it off, actually, I think on this uh, print. They, they didn't use it the home video print because it's so redundant. Mm. But nine, 10 minutes, and they, the exact executives, this was, it was contingent on it being green lit. Right. They were calling the shots of the attractions they wanted. You have to show Jaws, you have to show Battlestar, you have to show the Western. Wow. Now it doesn't play as bad, I found, in a way, because the, some of these attractions are gone. It's a time capsule. Yeah, so yeah. it's a time capsule. But yeah. now it looks like, it looked like the film, when it came out, it looked like it shifted into Super 8. Right. It was some tourists. It's barely justified. Yeah. I mean, and Don was beside himself. He was trying to put jokes in it and the Jaws looked so terrible. So people were riding the Jaws ride and would wonder if that's the same shark from the movie. I go no, because that one worked. <laughs> but it was, a, it, and the New York Times said it, it, a commercial that goes on longer than any commercial should, and it, it's just agony to say. And the movie can't recover from the – they come back from it. So I mean, it. Uh, but that was mandated from the highest corporate suites in there, and that's what happens. There was no way right. if they took that out or tried to cut it down um the movie would go away i mean there's a, this misnomer that people think that creatives can do whatever they want mm. and and they're not they're they're at the mercy of of so many things and it's it's a runaway train but i mean that was that was abysmal uh, uh, as well as, you know, certainly everything else. But, I mean, it was it was an agony to, to, to shoot. I mean, Dawn was funny, too, because when they go through the Battlestar Galactica, uh, for those who don't know, there was an attraction based on the original show. You have to say the original because we're on the fifth reboot coming. <laughs> it's very cheesy with silence, a crack of part that looked kind of like a can opener. It looked like Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Yeah. <laughs> and Dawn didn't watch the show, so he's walking through it going, this looks like Star Wars ripoff. Is someone going to get oh. sued? <laughs>
1: oh my god! You
2: know, it was just like, you know, and they couldn't heat the water for the Jaws sequence because it's the Jaws attraction. If they heated the water, then they would ruin the mechanical oh shark. So they're they're swimming in the cold water, and oh, Don's running gag through it. He would look at me and say, I got to get a decent job. <laughs> <laughs> what I remember on Star Trek the movie was people, Walter Koenig, and all the people, uh, uh, you know, you could, is it, how do you pronounce his name? Koenig? Walter Koenig, Koenig. Koenig. yeah. Walter well, Koenig, there you go. But I mean, I talked to Shatner in his trailer, and people, people were sitting around. You'd stop by. You know, Robin Williams could it was like, Oh, you're busy shooting movie. No, we got time. They're waiting <laughs> they were there, it was like hang out. It was like my dinner of Andre. Leonard Nimoy and Shatner having my dinner of Andre there. They're waiting for pages or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. That was phenomenal. I never seen people shooting so late, but I mean, it was, somebody said that we're waiting for pages. I guess right. that was happening
0: yeah. at yeah. some
2: point. I mean, everybody, everybody's With writing. different
0: timestamps throughout the day, not just colors, but like times.
2: Yeah. That happened on uh, the return of Maxwell Smart, the new bomb. They were rewriting all through it. I mean, they had to go to different new colors. They had to mix them mm. and they came back and then they had to go back to white because they went through all right. the colors. It was like the newspaper. Uh, coming out every day, oh you know. My joke was the later when I look back at it, going, "This was the first in, unscripted show." I mean, <laughs> at some point, but thankfully, Don could improv and had enough reservoir from the show coming up with the jokes or whatever. But I mean, I um, I remember hearing about that kicking in that, that after they went through a certain shooting point, Shatner and Nimoy had say over their dialogue right. or something. I but Leonard Nimoy was helping that movie a lot. I think that the seeds were planted for him to start getting involved behind the scenes because of what he was witnessing. Well, he took it so seriously. Yeah. I mean, in a good way. And had, you know, so, you know, he cared, you know. So he was always... Get, whether he
0: was right or wrong, he was giving his opinions because he was, he was thoughtful and he was invested
2: in it. Yeah, and, and, well, he, he, and without that movie, obviously, it wouldn't have launched the other thousand ships. Absolutely. It still has the best musical score. That's what blew me away. I guess my favorite memory is just hearing that score... Yeah. Hearing the Klingon music certainly, mm-hmm. you know, blew me away. When you
0: say, was it when you were hearing some of it being recorded or was it when you heard that overture blasting from inside the Paramount Theater?
2: Both, I think. Yeah. I think I heard record. I knew there was, a, there was orchestras 24 hours. I know they were recording at Fox, but there was some pickup orchestra there yeah, late it, at night. Maybe, you know?
0: you know, when they were finishing, it's possible that they couldn't get time on the Fox stage and they had to do you know, pickups for some of those scenes. You know, I think it is, Mark,
2: because the studios have their overhead. So I think because if you're going to be going all night, I think there was some advantage or savings. To be a Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's the overhead. They charge with everything. I heard they had done pickups of the original theme that they were dropping in. Mm. And there were some pickups and things they were doing because of the way the movie was just being put around. But there was an orchestra there, like, you know, all night or something on call. It's quite
1: possible they were rehearsing.
2: That could be. I mean, there was so much going on, uh, so you know, wild. in there. And, it was, and did
0: you talk to Jerry at all? I seem to recall you having, having had a conversation with Goldsmith.
2: Yeah, there was a party for Norman Steinberg's 50th uh, birthday. A writer, a of, of good friend and writer and mentor, wrote uh, one of the writers in Blazing Saddles and wrote My Favorite Year, an important movie, um, which was so. your relationship with Shatner, a bit on that. It was mine with Don Adams. Yeah. On, uh, <laughs> but Jerry Goldsmith was there, and it was the first time I met him and introduced myself to him. And um, which was thrilling. And Star Trek V, I think, was in release at that time. And uh, I said, I love the score for that. And he said, I'll send you an album. I'll send you an album. And he said, what did you think of the movie? And I said, I really enjoyed it. You know, it was polite. And he goes, don't lie to me.
0: (laughs) 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 Darren doesn't want to hear that. (laughs) Well, he was just, you know, he
2: had his issues certainly with it. He didn't like Alien, I had heard. Well, he didn't like how he was treated on air. See, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, I mean, temping and all that music. So I brought before, him over. And introduced him. Mel Brooks had never met Jerry Goldsmith, hmm. and so I brought him over. And then, you know, old old home week. I mean, it was uh, talked about the omen and the sand pebbles. I do remember he he loved Robert Wise. I yeah, mean, he really exactly. had a great relationship uh, with him. He showed he worked well under pressure. And it was That's Robert right. Wise who said he rejected the original theme and came up with uh, right. the the theme that was reprised. But I mean. That's the other thing I found. There's some really terrific, nice people that are, you know, look, Gene Roddenberry, you know, you know. we come full circle the end. Yeah. Most people at that level are not going to introduce themselves to a kid. You're going to go up to him. He was very gregarious. Right. And if you look at footage of the premiere in Washington, he's the only one that goes out amongst the fans, yeah, yeah. Is shaking their hands and was always yeah. grateful and nice to them. The, yeah. the rest of them were treating him like it was a leper colony, you know. Yeah. So, And understandably, because some of them are out there. But he never cast aspersions. I mean, he defended them. Yep. And he was a That's gregarious right. man. And when he made it the second time, which is bigger than he ever was, he didn't change. He still seemed to have the same friends and the same cohorts. And his demeanor didn't change. He could have been arrogant. He had confidence, certainly. Yeah. He was very you need it in this business
0: because you're dealing with rejection all the time. You have to have some level of confidence.
2: Yeah, and I learned something from dealing with a show from my IFC. I'm used to being humble, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, to be self-effacing because that was a channel that gets zero ratings. And like I, my conference call, the head of it is going, he's beating his chest or whatever. Like, We're making these big. Break- we got a buddy or whatever. You got a zero rating. It's like a farm channel. <laughs> right. What are you talking about? <laughs> I said Sledgehammer was canceled with 18 million viewers. <laughs> I said their ratings fall when someone leaves the living room to go in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, it God. was. I said an open casket has more viewers than IFC. So <laughs> I don't watch the oh. channel anymore. But well, I, I mean, you know, I am so glad, boy. This
0: reminds me of the days when we sit and watch uh, Space Precinct on the phone together. Oh, that was hilarious. That's on, that's on Amazon.
2: <laughs> you know, Amazon Prime, or you know, and that was funny. By the way, a, the producer on Amazon took a shot at the Naked Gun. And Sledgehammer. He's producing a show on Amazon. I took a shot saying, said, I'm not doing parody shows like those. He trashed us or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at, uh, I looked at, he, and he, all he talked about his life experience was what he watched or whatever. And I said, uh, you know, it just made me laugh or whatever. The, the lack of respect for genres that people have each other. In the olden days, nobody would do that. Everybody knows how hard it is to, everybody it? knows how hard and it is. And now I'm not going to watch his show when I'm searching for a, a, a D battery, you know, on Amazon. <laughs> That wonderful venue, That's hysterical. Well, it has been so great
0: having you on the show. I think, you know, this is, uh, I mean, it's so rare that you get to hear, but you hear from the cast, you know, on making these things. And they have their own perspective. I mean, like talking to Walter, he has his perspective on things. But to talk to somebody who's on the outside looking in, but... On the inside, because he's a fan, he loved what he was doing, and had also wasn't jaded. You know, you read an age where you weren't jaded, so it's really remarkable insight into what it was like, almost forty years ago, more than forty years ago, uh, making Star Trek the motion picture. You know, this, uh, you know, of all the, the episodes we've done honoring the legacy of Star Trek the motion picture, uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is what it was like. You know, I mean, Alan really, it was like a time machine. It was a time going back. People like and-
2: Leonard Stern. Look, Gene Roddenberry, uh, you know, George Lucas, you know, Rod Serling, um, Ian Fleming, they made your childhood. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And they've done nothing to undo it. And Gene Roddenberry was a visionary. He was a brilliant writer. He pushed people to do better work than they were capable of. He pushed them. He never made a script worse. He went the extra mile on drafts that made the the material better. Like it was his idea on um is it the enemy within to make the dual – everybody was doing evil twin shows. It was his idea to make the, the original character weaken and need mm-hmm. the other side. So he was always pushing for more, but he was a, he was a fine writer, a great thinker, and, and in my opinion, was a really nice man. And anybody that wants to say, cast aspersions towards him, some of the people, some of the cast members, a few, not not too many, because I, I loved I loved how the next generation treated him. I love that he was welcome on the set all the time. And there's footage of him singing Gilbert and Sullivan of everything. But I'm from the rule of thumb: if somebody made you famous and wealthy, you should stay indebted to them. And I, since there's a parallel to this, Don Adams never had a bad word to say about Mel Brooks, Buck Henry, and especially Leonard Stern. They stayed friends. Mm-hmm. And what I liked that Leonard said about Don, it was it was a huge hit, winning Emmys, groundbreaking show. And he said, you know, Don was basically a nice guy. He's had his star trips. We'd have our days. We'd have disagreements. But he said he could have fired me at any moment, but he didn't. We'd come and hash it out. And that's how it should be. You know, there's always going to be, like you said, it's a pressure cooker, a love-hate sort of thing. So some of the people talking from that maybe come from that. Yes. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, it always will be. And I, I was thrilled to spend time with him, and I'm thrilled that you honor his legacy, and I'm thrilled that you read that. And I, I, I hope people in the future, because they're archives, and certainly his son is the keeper of it. I gave Rod Roddenberry those notes, and he was grateful certainly to have them and was moved by them. And he loved hearing about his father demonstrating the computer to all of us because that's certainly part of the legacy. So uh Rod's a great Great guy. He's really, and really, really wonderful, and I liked his documentary too, "Warts and All." It mm-hmm. makes you appreciate when you do the, when you look at the warts, and it makes you appreciate the smooth skin more. But I hope people, and I hope you can devote in the future uh, whole episodes to reading Gene Roddenberry's notes, because there's a lot to learn from it—not just about Star Trek, about writing, and about life. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank
1: you,
0: Alan.
2: Thank you, Alan. This
0: is a really great episode, a very special episode of (laughs) Inglorious Trexverse. And thank you for joining us. If you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 movie every Friday, where we talk about the Oscar, and The Rebel (laughs) and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday. And of course, Best Movies Never Made, every other Monday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Nothing less will suffice. Also, is a very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter back there. Bill Ritter. Here at Electric Surge Network and producer Natalie Muscali who makes it all possible. Natalie, good episode, huh? That was a winner. Yeah, I'll tell you, man. they guests don't come like this every week. And uh, very special thanks to uh, Dean Devlin, without whom the show would not be possible. So uh, uh, until next week, next Saturday, um, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Shh, engage. <laughs>